episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to uh, another episode of our show with another really fascinating guest uh, helping to create a better tomorrow. Uh, today, we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Ingo Rout, who is the uh, founder and career purpose coach uh, at the School of Becoming, uh, which is a learning platform that's focused on purpose-led professional development, uh, supporting individuals and organizations on their path from so-called paycheck to purpose. Uh, Dr. Rout is also an adjunct professor in design and innovation management at IE Business School in Madrid, Spain. Uh, his current research uh, is focused on facilitating innovation capabilities in large organizations uh, to improve their innovation efforts. Uh, his background includes several years of working as a design consultant concerned with innovation projects uh, at major uh, companies around the world, including Nokia, Philips, Steelcase, to name a few. Uh, and this experience led to his current interest in supporting large organizations uh, and ultimately utilizing design as a driver for innovation. Uh, in 2003, he launched his first nonprofit organization to help teenagers interested in design to get started uh, with their education. Uh, and ultimately, until today, is the self-financed um, organization and has helped more than 14,000 uh, kids to find their way in this regard. Uh, Dr. Rout has a PhD uh, from Chambers University of Technology in Innovation Management Design. He does postdoc work at uh, both University of Cincinnati and University of Toronto. Uh, and he's also a alumni and professor at the Modern Elder Academy, uh, which is the world's first midlife wisdom school uh, dedicated to career and life transitions. Uh, and he recently published a very interesting white paper uh, with Modern Elder Academy founder Chip Connolly, uh, known as sort of a rebel hospitality entrepreneur of Airbnb fame, uh, entitled The Emergence of Long Life Learning, which will be a very interesting topic uh, to get into as well. Um, Dr. Ingo Rout, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Yours. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> It's it's great to have you. Uh, these are really fascinating topics that we don't normally get into, uh, but I you know I, I'd love to start off as we typically do by handing you the floor for a little bit, really just to talk about yourself uh, a little more about uh, sort of your background in terms of where you grew up, uh, how you got interested in this area, and a little bit of how you became uh, such an important person at many, many of these world's largest companies and teaching them uh, what to do in terms of innovation and design. I'm I'm not sure if that if I'm dead that important and by the way i'm not a professor at mea i'm just like a okay. fellow there but right. um like just how it all started i grew up in germany uh not much about it close to frankfurt and um since i was 19 year old 90 years old i always wanted to find a way to make a positive contribution make a positive change i think that is what first got me interested and inspired to become a designer however i started out as a graphic designer not really knowing what it was and realizing hey there's a limit to it there's almost only so much you can do with that so i became interested in industrial design i studied that i worked as an industrial designer uh, became a design consultant worked in design strategy and started to work with large organizations and with their innovation teams and one thing that I realized there was that somehow, although there are a lot of smart and capable people that want to like improve our everyday lives and want to improve the world and leave a dent, somehow like it doesn't translate. Somehow these organizations are stuck in their ways. And somehow like no matter what we do, 
there's only so much we can actually accomplish. And that kind of started to like that question, like, why is, why is it that way? And what could be done about it started to trigger my interest and was the reason why I started to uh, pursue a PhD um, in regards to innovation management and how can we change? How can we like support large organizations in doing that? And for me, that led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole because I realized the problem is not the methodology. The problem is not the approach. The problem is the cultures, the organizations that we have created. They are marvelous in their own regard. The only problem is that they're so optimized that they leave little room for change, for innovation, for turning things to the better, although we as humans develop all the time. And so through that, develop an understanding or an interest in change, change management, human behavior, uh, which ultimately led me to uh, do the work that I'm doing today, which is very much focused on um, supporting individuals in going from paycheck to purpose, because I believe if we can support enough people to do that, and I think you're um, like show your podcast is an amazing way also to like spread that kind of knowledge, that kind of aspiration, these kind of ideas. If we can support enough people in doing that, um, then ultimately we will create the organizations, we will create the environments that allow us to develop as societies, as groups, as teams, as individuals. Wonderful. And you know, I, I took some time to go through. Uh, you have, you know, you have a, a variety of publications, and, and you know, one <laughs> of the themes that that you uh, write about a lot is this principle of design thinking. Uh, I went to your, I think, it was a 2010 paper, "Design Thinking and Educational Models Towards Creative Confidence." Uh, you write on this topic, sort of, you broadly define it in this paper: a holistic concept to design cognition and design learn that enables students to work successfully in multidisciplinary teams and enact positive design-led change in the world. And you talk about how uh, design thinking is, is very important for what you call wicked problems, uh, right. these problems that are uh, complex and, and because they uh, can have contradictory or changing requirements continually, uh, they're kind of difficult to pin down. Uh, mm. uh, climate change, education policy, public health, things of this nature. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, your, your concept of design thinking and sort of what goes into this, because I know there's a lot of principles behind it. Take a little time with this one. Sure. Um, so design thinking started out as an approach like mainly championed by one organization, which is called IDU in US and Stanford School um, of Design, basically, and their idea of how design can be used as a driver for innovation. The marvelous thing they did was they were able to explain design in a way that you and me and everybody else gets it. More importantly, they were able to explain it in a way that a lot of large organizations realized, oh, wow, there's actually a method to the madness. There is a way in which we can like predictively come up with new ideas that people want to buy. That's amazing, right? We should do that. So based on that, there was a lot of interest and a lot of pull from industry and um, various organizations, very large, organization, large organizations that we studied, that we wrote about, um, have like initiated teams that focus on that. They were focused on bringing design thinking to these large organizations. Now, with that, also giving them the opportunity to research customers, research people, and find ways to contribute value to their lives, which is an amazing thing. The reason why this works is that for the longest time, we had these ideas about what people want or should want without actually asking them. Right. It's like, um, let's say you have kids and you want to like prepare something, a lunch for them or a dinner for them, and you just cook something up 
And then you don't know what they want. And they come to the table and say like, mom, this is not, or dad this is not what I want to <laughs> eat. Right. And so you're like, yeah, of course not. Every but, day. Like, you got to eat this. Now this might work with your kids, but it doesn't work with consumers. And mm. given that, um, like the, uh, space was changing given that there was more and more competition and more and more um, like competition on price. Price wasn't the driving factor anymore. So we needed to find a way in order to like deliver value to consumers that is rooted in their everyday, in their needs and hence design thinking. So it always starts and you ask about principles with understanding the customer like through being mm -hmm. empathic with the customer, not bringing my lens to the table and saying like, oh, this is what it should look like, but being open for this to discovery and being curious. Now, once that is understood, now I understand, okay, what do people really want? And there's a, there's a brilliant example, it's often cited uh, by an engineer, um, Doug Deeds at GE. So he was an engineer working on MRIs. And uh, so MRIs, if you've ever been in an MRI, is like this big, loud machine. It makes a lot of noise. And even for an adult, it's very scary. Now imagine like a kid, eight, nine, 10 years old going into this and like they experience his or her parents being paranoid about that kid, like having something that cannot be cured. So there's a lot of anxiety. And on top of that, you have that noise. And Doug, very passionate about his work, got to see like a kid being terrified going into his machine that should actually help that kid to get better. And so he realized that the machine wasn't working in the way he wanted. Like the experience that that kid has was terrifying. The experience the uh, parents had was terrifying. And he wondered what we can do. So he and the team set out to understand um, better what kids are going through. They talked to psychologists, they talked to um, nurses, to um, clinicians, to understand this whole procedure of what is actually happening. And that didn't have much to do with engineering in the first place. It was more about the experience experience rather than the solution or the product. And so understanding that experience, they realized, for example, that when kids are in an environment like an amusement park, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of rumbling going on, there's a lot of stuff that is happening. But the way the kid interprets that environment is as positive, is as an adventure. And they thought like, hey, is there a way that we can help to like change the experience, not the product, but the way the kid experiences that. Mm. So after understanding like the, that they provided a solution for these kids, they tried to understand, okay, how, what can we do about it? And they came up with this idea of framing this whole um, experience as an adventure. And they came up with a couple of themes like space and pirates. And the way it looked like basically was the kid was told a story that like the kid would go inside of a pirate ship. And in this pirate ship, the kid had to hide from the pirates. And so laying down like in the ship and hiding, um, the kid had to hold, be very, very still because if it would move, then the pirates would find the child. And so the pirate, uh, the kid had to like sit still in the MRI. And basically the medical reason here is that if the kid moves, um, the uh, images are not readable. So the kid has to hold still. And for that matter, kids have had often been sedated. I think about 85% of kids needed sedation, which is another stressor on the kid, on the parents. Yep. So like with that story, all of a sudden, the kid interpreted that noise from the MRI as the pirates going about the ship and interpreted 
like his own behavior as or her own behavior as I have to lay still so they don't find me. The medical reason aside, the kids started to like engage better, cope better with the experience. And as a result of that intervention, so what they did basically to the MRI is the kid got a couple of props, got told the story. The MRI was repainted. Uh, there was a beautiful decal on the wall um, and the whole thing got a pirate theme. So you can, if you Google GE Adventure Series, um, you will find some images there. It looks actually quite like a playground. Anyway, the kid would go in that, would go through treatment and the amount of sedation that needed to happen in some of the hospitals with which they tried this initially um, plummeted from 85% to 15%, right. which resulted not only in a better experience for the kids, but also in like a reduction of cost for the treatment because kids needed don't need to be sedated anymore. And with that, they needed less medical personnel. So overall, just by understanding the person or the individual better, they came up with a solution that supported uh, kids, the family, the hospital, and make an economical sense. So that's a little bit about the idea of being rooted in user experience or in empathy, and then coming up with ideas that provide a better experience testing these ideas initially with one hospital as they did. And then once they got the evidence, they know it worked, they started to scale that up. And now it's something that has been installed at, I think, many hospitals in the US. And I think they even have a list online where you can find these. So that's a little bit the idea behind um, design thinking. So it's not a technical approach to innovation. Mm -hmm. It's a user-centered approach to innovation, if you like. Absolutely. And I, uh, and as you know, I was looking through uh, sort of the principles that go into it, you're mentioning sort of uh, empathy and sort of, um, you know, the human centered approach. And, and it's, it's a very elegant um, uh, concept for especially for someone like me that's sort of outside of, of this domain, but I definitely see the, um, you know, this, this concept and also how it fits into some of the other things that you work with. Um, and, you know, with that, you know, I'd love to, to transition now to uh, everything you're doing at the School of Becoming, because I, I find this is another, once again, I mean, thinking of these concepts of empathy and looking at the human, you know, you talk about this concept of, uh, you know, whether here we are, uh, whether we're with new careers, relationships, just life in general, uh, we're not a static thing. Uh, we are constantly in this process, what you call state of becoming. Um, there was a, a Dutch uh, doctor, embryologist, uh, Jap van der Waal, who I, I like reading his material a lot. He, you know, he, he talks more about embryology and sort of the embryo, you know, there's not much difference between the embryo and what I've become. Once again, constant motion, the constant state of becoming something new. Uh, talk a little bit about sort of how you set, you know, how you got the idea to set this up, uh, some of the issues that you mainly focus on, uh, obviously in, in dealing with people later on in their lives, but in these different unique transition stages. Right. Thank you. And thank you for using the word transition, because I think that is like at the core of uh, what we're trying to support people with. So it for me, it all started uh, with actually my own experience going through life. I lived in many countries. I had many jobs and um, I always wondered, is is there a better way? But like it didn't come like this didn't transition into or led to anything at the university um, until like I would say about nine or 10 years ago. So at the time, what I started to understand is that a lot of people that go and pursue an MBA are actually doing that, not because they necessarily want to get a master in business administration. 
they do this to hit the reset button on their life. And I was approached by the dean and by some colleagues asking, hey, Ingo, like, can we do something about that? And at the time, I started to experiment and use design thinking with my students to actually change behavior. So um, there is a research stream in behavior science that focuses on individual behavior. And what we did is we were running these classes where we were working on habits and other things. And we're using design thinking as the way in which we engage in behavior science. And so naturally, I was starting to think, okay, is there a way to combine this with these larger questions that uh, my students have. To give you an example, I was sitting in a class and I asked them, okay, um, welcome to this class. Um, and it was a small class, it was about 18 people. And I asked, okay, let me know your name. Let me know why you're sitting in this class and let me know what you will do after you graduate because your graduation is about three months or four months away. And to my surprise, the students, a large amount of them didn't know what they wanted to do after they graduated. Although they invested a lot of money into like this education. And I was thinking, yeah, that resonates with my own experience. And why are we not supporting these students? And there are support mechanisms at universities. Most of them have career counselors and advisors. However, oftentimes what they don't address is like this fundamental need for um, figuring out who am I? So once again, what's my own experience? And where do I want to go next? How can I figure out what I want if I don't know what I want? So most of these institutions weren't set up for that. And that led to like the formation of the first um, life design course that I taught at the university uh, in Madrid. So I business school uh, with the students there. And then I was talking, I was teaching this course ever since. So like, I don't know how many iterations I did on this course, but mm -hmm. like, Basically, I did two every year. And what I came to understand there was that oftentimes what we already know in research about, for example, what makes a life purposeful or meaningful? Um, what do we need in order to feel competent and confident at work? Like these things, we have answers to that, but it's oftentimes not translated into application. It's not like, like we don't support our students in understanding that. Education in high, or higher education is a lot about teaching people about the world, but it's not so much teaching or supporting people in understanding and getting to know themselves. And so these courses, it's basically the only thing that they do. They allow students um, through a design approach, through design thinking, to understand themselves better and design a life that is in line with who they are and who they want to be. So it's not so much about understanding, okay, where do I get the most money or what is the most reputable job, but understanding who am I? And based on that, what's the best match? Where will I, would I feel fulfilled? And basically the school of becoming is about taking these ideas one step further. So allowing people in general, not only university students to gain access to that knowledge, trying to understand, okay, what do I deeply value? How can I think about passion or purpose in a way that makes sense? And it helps me to understand how I can go about it and foster this, not based on the best practice or a general idea, but based on some principles from psychology, from behavior science, and from some insights from neurology that help us to better understand and go about these things. And, and then sort of 
taking that one step further now, because as, as mentioned before, you're you're a fellow with the, the Modern Elder Academy. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, you you wrote this you know fascinating piece, the emergence of long life learning with yes. uh, Chip Connolly, and here we have um, you know we point out two things here. One, uh, and you said this before, that there's a very uh, a major gap with regard to uh, the sort of the educational landscape that's happening at this part of life. Uh, on top of that, and, and our show spends a lot of time talking about um, longevity, healthy, you know, healthy longevity, health span, uh, which ultimately gets that, you know, always get that question, well, if at some point we are creating 90, uh, that becomes the new 50, or 100, that becomes whatever yeah. that may be, um, lifelong learning and your book, or your, your piece here, The Emergence of What to Do Next, uh, is equally a very important becoming event, <laughs> a, a very new event that, that most people will not, ex have not experienced to date. Uh, the world is now going to change, maybe five right. years later, whatever. Uh, talk a little bit about how you got involved with the Modern Elder Academy, a little bit about sort of what they're up to, and then sort of some of your goals and, and, and your involvement here in merging your concepts of, of this goal becoming, your work with design yeah. thinking into this. Of course, of course. Um, so how that started was basically I... Um, <laughs> so when it comes to my own life, I also practice life design. And I do that like every time I have a class with my students because I find it beneficial to go through this exercise. And in one of these exercises, it became clear to me that it would be great to have a school that allows people to actually come to and figure out what they want to do next in life. If you, if you imagine this like a school that allows you when you are, no matter how old you are, when you are in this period that is not considered a period, uh, where you are in between jobs, where you're in between careers, where you are in between relationships, that allows you to go there and find your own way. And that was a very abstract idea. And I talked to that about my, uh, with my girlfriend, who is a Montelier, and she was like, have you heard about this guy called Chip Conley? And I was like, no, who's that? And she was like, yeah, you ch should check out this recent interview with him because he actually is doing what you want to do. And I was like, this is amazing. So I listened to his interview and I was like, yeah, there's so much synergy in terms of what they are talking about and what I'm interested in, in terms of being science-based, in terms of creating the space that allows people, no matter which age they have, to come back and work through their transition and work through um, like their ideas that they have about their life. So I should reach out to him. It took me about 48 hours to click send on that email. I remember I was super <laughs> nervous, although like I practiced that a lot, but like for some, for some reason it was really important to me. And I remember that after I hit the send button and I had, I think my girlfriend read over the email twice or something like that. But anyway, so I hit the send button and then two hours later, all of a sudden I heard this ding from my email. I looked at it and ship reply. And I was like, Oh my God. So I was like, is this like, sorry, uh, but like no chance or what is it? And um, I reached out asking him, hey, I love what you do. This is what I do. I see there are a lot of synergies. Um, is there a chance to do an internship or an apprenticeship um, at the Modern Elder Academy? And I know it was a bold request and I guess that's why I was nervous, but um, he replied two hours later and said, well, you know, there might be a chance next year. Let me talk to my uh, business partners and let me get back to you. And so long story short, uh, six or seven months later in June, 2020, 
um, being 42 at the time, no, 41 at the time, I did my internship or apprenticeship at the Modern Elder Academy and mm. um, they were really generous. I was there for a week going through the program, which was an amazing experience. I'm still in contact with my cohort, amazing group of people. Um, and like I continued staying with them for another four weeks and they allowed me to ask questions and take a uh, peek behind the scenes. And at the end of my experience, Chip asked me, hey, what do you want to do? And he had this idea um, about writing a paper about midlife and understanding a little bit better, okay, what are the different players in that area? Who's making contributions in that field and providing like a, a centerpiece that allows us to have better conversation. Because as it turns out, there have been a couple of initiatives when it comes to midlife, but midlife is still largely regarded um, as like um, a period of crisis and where you have to maintain. And we have had that notion of a three-step life for the longest period of life. However, we know it's not true anymore. And for those of you who don't know, like the three-step life is basically this idea. You have an education, you work, you climb the corporate ladder, and then you retire. Yeah. But nowadays, with COVID-related layoffs and with everything that our world is going through in regards to innovation, that's not true anymore. We need to change, we need to adapt, and we need to find ways to do so. And we need to also see these things as not only challenges, but also opportunities. And we wanted to reframe that conversation a little bit, showing all the evidence that's out there in terms of how we not only decline after we hit 40, but how are some of our skills, some of our abilities actually increase and how our life satisfaction overall, if we look at the lifespan of like people in developed countries on average, it actually dips around 47.1 and starts to increase from there. So if you're in your 40s, if you are like in midlife and if you think that life isn't that great, like there is for sure hope. And so um, that was a little bit the idea about this paper and we circulated it with a lot of colleagues before publishing and uh, also talked to developmental uh, psychologists and other people because we wanted to get their view and make this a sure, uh, make this a representation of what we understand right now and make it like a starting point for a conversation around midlife and around how midlife can be seen as something positive, like a new starting point where you have the opportunity to revisit your life where you have the opportunity and the wisdom also to actually look back at your life, understand who you truly are, and then make adjustments. And I think the crisis, if it happens, and by the way, it only happens to a minor amount of people, and it's not more, um, if you look at the statistics, actually, um, you are as likely to get a crisis around midlife than you are at every other period of your life. So there's mm -hmm. nothing really special about it. But um, let's say you are not feeling well. And usually that is the result of you realizing that maybe you want to do something more with your life. Maybe there's more to it than the nine to five and the work that you're doing day in and day out. And the reason for that happening is we become a person uh, like a fully developed adult, if you like, at that period of time. And then we realize that we made decisions in our 90s when we were teenagers that we couldn't foresee the consequences for and that made us end up in lives which we might not particularly like. And so realizing this discrepancy and realizing that we could change, we start to wonder what can we do? And with that, from this gap can come like a second 
like opportunity can come a better life if you like but the question is how do you navigate that because society at large is set up in a way that says well if you have a great job if you have a great income if you have a family and you live in a suburb somewhere you shouldn't complain <laughs> because life was all about security like a healthy paycheck uh, health and maintaining a status quo but what we came to realize as our understanding of the world developed, as we develop as societies, as our understanding of human psyche developed, is there can be more to life. There can be meaning and purpose and that these things are really important. And we have known this in psychology for like a really long time, but um, it wasn't really accessible or a thing until recently, until we started to understand and we got to more interested in our psychological well-being in our happiness and our health. And we started to question, why is life the way it is? Really interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, Ingo, take us now, you know, we, we've gone out a little bit and, and yeah. we've gone into uh, sort of work life and then midlife and talking about long, long life. Um, let's look back around a bit. And, and, and can you say a few words about your, your work? Obviously we, it started off a couple decades ago with teenagers, because I, I think, you know, just like we all are experiencing <laughs> things and transition and becoming, obviously, you know, I have a couple of teenagers in the house here. Uh, they are <laughs> becoming too, and they are uh, becoming in a world that is very different and unique and strange. Um, talk a little bit about what you did with the, the nonprofit and a little bit, are, are you still doing some of that work in terms of uh, the teenagers and getting them ready for their next stage uh, of becoming? <laughs> so uh, I'm not as much involved as I was. Um, okay. So this is largely run uh, by a friend and a colleague um, okay. that has taken over like uh, the, the everyday operations. And I'm not in Germany anymore, but um, I did this or I started this because at the time I realized myself that there was a gap. And I think when it comes to our conversation, what I tend to focus on in my work is like these gaps, these transition points. So as we talked about university to work life or like midlife, for example, when we mm -hmm. start to realize we want to change something, right? But that's probably that NGO is probably the first time in my life where I realized there was a gap that wasn't addressed. There were a lot of students um, including myself at the time, who wanted to study design. Yet the pathway to do that in Germany or in German-speaking countries wasn't clear mm -hmm. because you needed to have like a design portfolio. I didn't know what a design portfolio was. <laughs> and you needed to pass uh, an arts test. I never had an arts test in school. I didn't know what these people wanted from me. And so there was a lot of like insecurity and uncertainty. Sure. And I think that's what all of these situations have in common. In insecurity triggered by uncertainty, by ambiguity. And so this project was basically about mitigating that and supporting st future students in understanding this better, providing a bridge, basically. And so we started to do that. And I remember when I started out, like, I originally didn't think of it being a forum. All I wanted to do was, like, to get some examples on how I can get to this into this um, field of study. And what I started to realize is that others had the same problem. And I started to have conversations with these individuals. And um, it was due to their questions, due to their um, challenges that I 
came to understand that feel better and better and better. And that we just started together with a bunch of volunteers. I could have never done it alone, but we together started creating this platform that addresses these questions that people have, that address this uncertainty and this need for like some sort of structure. Yeah. And from that perspective, I, um, Thanks for asking the question. I came to, I just now realized that, yeah, maybe these um, things in my life have actually something in common because sometimes when I look back at my life, I'm like, okay, how did I get there again? So thanks for that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And, and just, you know, while we're on that topic, um, obviously you've had an amazing career so far. You've met undoubtedly uh, uh, a range of fascinating people in, in the industry that you consult for in academia. Um, Take a few minutes, if you would, just to mention, shout out to anybody that's you know been extremely influential, uh, may important mentors uh, on this career path for you so far. Obviously, there's probably a lot of them, but if you want to <laughs> take a few minutes just to, to hit some of the the key ones, and that'd be great to uh, yeah, to sure. Um, wow, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Just thinking where to start. So, uh, starting in a chronological order, starting with the latest one being obviously uh, Chip Connolly and the fantastic team um, at MEA, uh, Jeff, Christine, super thankful for them sharing their wisdom, their mm -hmm. insights, their ideas and the experience that they deliver because it's amazing. It's like, it's not only about like being taught, but um, engaging in a community like that is has been fantastic. Um, before that, um, I want to like name a couple of colleagues at Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. Um, here, Professor Newman Azraf, uh, Mark Wang, who I worked with, uh, amazing people, amazing um, thought-provoking uh, thought leaders, I would call them. And uh, I really enjoyed working with them and engaging with them. Um, going back to uh, Cincinnati, where I worked with Holly O'Driscoll, who is a, an amazing design thinking facilitator, as well as some of the folks at PNG and the folks at uh, University of Cincinnati. Um, obviously, uh, my uh, PhD supervisors at the time, so here, uh, Maria Amquist, as well as Dan Jan Wickenberg, who have been amazing thought partners and like have been amazing people supporting me in my journey. I think I couldn't have done it without them. Um, and going all the way back to uh, like my first PhD position at the Hasselblad Institute in Berlin, where I had the fortune to work with some amazing colleagues and uh, Professor Meinl, who has been very supportive in taking me on, um, although not having a design or having an academic background, but being a designer, giving me the opportunity to start on that journey. So. There have been lots of folks. I've probably forgot tons. I should mention my girlfriend as well. Oh, yeah. Around, oh, yeah. So <laughs> Don't forget that. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't have done it without her for all her encouragement and everything. So yeah, like, thank you for providing me with that opportunity. Uh, it just makes me um, think I should write them an email. So that's who comes to mind. And obviously there has been plenty of reads and research. There have been books that I really um, loved and that really helped me to develop my thinking. So, and I guess we all have our fair shares of those. So yeah, if you want to know any of these books, yeah, <laughs> make yeah, me email. Definitely. Yeah, none of, none of us gets gets down this path on our own. And I think that's, that's it's just important uh, that uh, we take time and recognize uh, everyone that came before us, part of that process of becoming. <laughs> yes. uh, so I think for that's- sure. Yeah. For sure, for um, sure. One thing, if of interest that I, that I want to offer, because he said sure. like this idea about um, different periods. So 
one thing that I found super interesting that we get hardly exposed to is that we are, and you mentioned this a couple of times, are always becoming. Uh, so for example, what I didn't know is that your prefrontal cortex, and with that, the cap capacity to think long-term mm -hmm. isn't fully developed until you're 25. Wow. And that although like we make people decide on what they want to be for the rest of their lives when they're 19, when they're 20 years old. <laughs> so like that, that's kind of contradictory, right? And then it takes us a couple of more years into our thirties to realize who we are independent from what everybody else wants of us. And when that happens, all of a sudden we start to realize, hey, we, we could do other things. These other people actually don't have as much influence as we think, and we could pursue them. And by realizing that, like it, it basically brings up the next challenge in our lives. And that will continue to happen. And when we look into the life of people from a developmental point of view, there's always change. Like stability is an illusion. We love this illusion for its tale of safety and stability is something that we all want. And yeah, we have it to some extent, but I think we cannot help but change at a certain point in time. And so this change and this adaption that we see in our economies is also very much true on an individual level. And I think that's why institutions like institutions like a school of becoming modern elder academy and a couple of universities that we actually give a shout out in our papers um, to are so important because they provide us with the places that tell us that change is actually part of being human and mm. that there are ways to do that now we're not wrong when we feel like we want to do something about it and we want to change our lives excellent points excellent points it's um it's fascinating hearing uh, your story and, and everything that you're doing and really wishing you the best with all of it. Um, Thank you, Because we, we really, the world needs, it's going to need more and more uh, in the coming years, especially with uh, the way things have progressed. And uh, it's exciting. And really, as I'm wishing you the best, the um, for everybody that's going to be listening to this episode on our podcast or watching uh, on the YouTube channel, you've been listening to Dr. Ingle Rout, uh, founder, career purpose coach, at the School of Becoming, uh, fellow at the Modern Elder Academy. Uh, check out uh, The Emergence of Long Life Learning and a variety of other, uh, his other writing. Um, really, really great stuff. And I just want to thank you, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show to thank you for what you've been doing. And as we say on our show, uh, thank you for helping to create a better tomorrow through what you're doing. It's uh, very inspirational uh, and, and really appreciated. Yura, thank you so much for having me and uh, giving me the room to share some thoughts and talking to you as well as to your listeners. And I wish you all uh, the best for the future of this podcast, because I think it's an amazing transition to the topic that we are both interested in. So thanks a lot. Absolutely.